This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. There's one thing for us to walk around and say, Happy Easter, he is risen, yay, whoopee. And then not think about how that relates to life and how that same power that we claim as Christians brought Jesus back from the dead. Where's that power in the life of people who are struggling so much? Where's the king on the throne? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Thanks for joining us again on Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Aaron Magnuson. We're taking time to pause and reflect on the meaning of Easter and why it matters. Let's get into Pastor Jeff's message now about Jesus, the creator of the universe who was crucified as our sacrifice for you and for me, giving us the greatest display of love in human history. This is Today with Jeff Vines. welcome you. Glad you're here to share Easter with us. We're going to tackle a difficult issue because it's one thing for us to walk around and say, happy Easter. He is risen. Yay. Whoopee. And then not think about how that relates to life and how that same power that we claim as Christians brought Jesus back from the dead. Where's that power in the life of people who are struggling so much? Where's the king on the throne? When I start dealing with this whole tension that I experience in the resurrecting power of Jesus and that he's the king on the throne and he rules the world, the first thing I remember is that evil actually affirms the existence of God. It doesn't take away from it. That evil actually affirms the existence of God. Now follow me here. This will be the only heavy part of the message, I promise. So like your little teacher used to say, put your thinking caps on, okay, and follow me. As soon as you place any event in your life into the category of evil, you are assuming that you have the ability to determine the difference between what is good and what is evil. You are further assuming that there is a moral law inside you that governs these categories, that tells you what goes into the category of good and what goes into the category of evil. As soon as you label anything as evil, you're assuming those two things. You can tell the difference between good and evil, and there's a moral law internally, intrinsic, innately in you that governs those two categories. Now, here's the first point, folks. Atheistic evolution cannot give that to you. If you're here because of time plus matter plus chance, time plus matter plus chance cannot create a moral ethic. In fact, what is the premise of atheistic evolution? If there is no God and there is no uh, intelligent designer of this universe and you and I are here by accident, then the rule of thumb with atheistic evolution is that the strong overpower the weak and only the strong survive and the weak are discarded. So why is it then when the Third Reich and all of its power overwhelm six million plus innocent Jews, the weak, and obliterate them, that something inside you stands up and shouts, no fair, foul. And the reason you do that is because internally, you know that every human life has an intrinsic value. But every life can have an intrinsic value if you're here by accident and blind dumb luck. If you've got no purpose, no meaning, which is the result of an atheistic world where there is no God, then you've got no reason to ask why about anything. If something bad happens to you, here's the best answer you're going to get. Wrong place, wrong time, bad luck, mate, perhaps better luck next time. 
So as soon as you stand up and shout, why did this happen? You're assuming that this world has been created by God, a God who gave it meaning and purpose, and atheistic evolution cannot give that to you. Furthermore, you've got to ask why it is that internally you know the difference between right and wrong. I go back to Ecclesiastes, where the Bible tells us that God has written his law, that he has placed eternity in our hearts, that we know because God has placed the system of right and wrong, generally speaking, in every one of our lives, in all people, in all culture. You've got to ask yourself why you have that ability to determine those two categories. The only legitimate answer is that God put it in the heart of every person he created. So as soon as you assume something is evil, you're assuming good, you're assuming a moral law, and you're assuming that there was a God who gave the moral law, the moral law giver, to put that in your hearts to give you the ability to determine the difference between good and evil. As a matter of fact, when you talk about pain in the world, it must be answered in the context of God, not outside of it. Because outside of it, pain is not an issue. It's just evolution rearing its ugly head and the survival of the fittest. And if you're weak, you're not going to survive. That's just the way it is. So evil, as soon as I affirm it, that actually affirms the existence of God and the moral law written on the heart of every human being. And that was the hard part. The second thing is a little bit more practical. Let me try to contextualize this. The issue of pain, I've noticed that it is not intrinsically evil in and of itself that I do things in the human experience every day of my life that inflicts pain on something or someone that we do not morally categorize as evil. Let me give the first example. You know what this is, don't you? It's an aquarium. <laughs> my daughter really wanted one, so I got it. Do you know how much work these things are? It was like when I said, yes, sweetheart, you can have a swimming pool. Yeah, it's all fun and games till dad gets out there in the hot sun. Yeah. Think about an aquarium. I've noticed I'm the god of the aquarium. I determine if they eat and when they eat. I determine the quality of their food. I determine how clean their water is or unclean that it is. I am the god of the universe of the aquarium, and I determine who lives and dies. What's really frustrating? Do you think I get any gratitude from these fish? You think they greet me as I walk out of the door? Thank you, Mr. Jeff. Nothing, nothing. As a matter of fact, even when I try to save one of their lives, they're ungrateful. I would take a net because one of the little fish has an infection over the eye, and when that happens, the other fish try to attack the fish and eat it. So in order to save the life of the fish, I, I, I got to get it out of the aquarium, quarantine it over here to, to, to help the infection heal, to save its life. You think it has any gratitude? No, it runs all around things. I can't even catch the doggone thing. It thinks I'm trying to kill it, when in reality, I'm just trying to save its life. It thinks I'm inflicting pain, but I'm trying to rescue it and save it from future destruction. It's not grateful, it doesn't even know. And now let's move over here to this one. Yeah, guys, you know what this is. Right out of my garage, right? Pain right here. Three times a week, I get home from work. I'm tired, I'm weary. I'm stressed, I go out, you can ask my wife, religiously, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I go out and punish myself for an hour and a half. And you think it's because I like pain? No, I actually hate doing it. But I, well, I'll tell you why I do it, let's just be honest. It all started when I was 37 years old back in New Zealand. I'm with my youth pastor, Bill Kirshner, we're in a mall eating some ice cream and just people watching. That's what you do at malls, right? And we're people watching. About that time, this beautiful young girl comes walking by with her mother. Now. I know I'm a pastor, but I'm a guy too. And you know I'd be lying if a beautiful girl comes by and I told you I looked the other way. You know that's a big fat lie. 
I might look the other way after a few seconds, okay? But that's what, I mean, I've learned that it's okay to enjoy the creation of God as long as you keep your eye on the creator and off his creation for any limited amount of time. And so she's walking by, Bill Kirshner and I are there, she's beautiful. After she goes by, Bill Kirshner says, Jeff, did you see that? Of course I say, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you doing? He said, did you see that? I said, what? He said, man, she was checking you out. <clears throat> now, we guys like to hear things like that. And I, but you know, false humility, I say, oh, Bill, don't be serious. Because you know, every guy thinks he's the best looking guy in the world. You know that, right? That's why, that's why on movies, it's the ugliest guys get the best girls, right? Because that's how guys are. They, they just lost sense of reality a long time ago because their mommy told them they were handsome and they believe it. So anyway, we're here. <clears throat> this girl goes by. I say, no, Bill, you're crazy, man. She, you're, she's much too young. Bill says, man, wise up. I'm talking about her mother. <laughs> that's when I knew right then and there, age had won. And that's when I bought my first gym. <laughs> I was determined that I was going to defeat age, that I was going to look young, and I was going to work out. So I go to the gym still to this day trying to defeat age, working out harder and harder, getting stronger and feeling like I'm invincible. In reality, I know the inevitable is going to happen. I'm getting old, I'm losing strength, and I'm going to die someday. But I don't care. I'm going to go down fighting. I'm going to go down kicking. And if I got to get some Grecian formula, I'll do that too. I may even get hair plugs. I don't know what I'll do. I can't be trusted. Here's the third thing. This is my favorite photo. It hangs in my office. It hangs there because it reminds me of what matters most to me. Now, outside of my relationship with God and my wife, I want my relationship with my son to be so good. I've longed for this and yearned for this for so long. I love my son Delaney and my daughter Sion. But I keep this photo. I used to take Delaney golfing with me when he had an interest in it. We still do things together, but not golf anymore. He lost interest. Maybe that's because dad wasn't patient, but I am reminded of how much I love him in this relationship with father and son. Man, it energizes me, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be a dad because sometimes I had to inflict pain on my son when he was younger to deter him from a greater disaster. You know, you have to ground him and you don't want to do that. I remember when he was a little boy, he would crawl around as a toddler and he would find any piece of metal in the house and stick it in the electric outlets. Now, I'm not a rocket science, but that's not good, right? And that's gonna kill him. So how can I communicate in baby talk to my son, don't do that, and I tried everything. And he, no matter where we hit all the screwdrivers or whatever, he would find it. I mean, they're amazing, those little babies. They get, you wonder, how did he crawl up to the top of the ceiling and get that? You just don't know. They get, they will find a way. And I, I'm starting to get concerned that I'm going to come home one day and he's just laying there with electric shock. So I take a little bit of an aggressive uh, uh, attitude toward this thing. And so I, I find him when I come home from seminary one day, he's got his hand uh, and a screwdriver in the VCR. Now, some of you don't even have no, any idea what that is. Before DVD, we had these little things called VCRs. And they had cassette tapes. <laughs> and he pushed, it, he pushed his hand in with, these, with this metal and this uh, uh, pliers and screwdriver and I realized this kid is going to kill himself. So I walked over the first time. I took his little hand. He's a toddler and just gave him a little smack. Now, I didn't kill him. I know you probably get arrested today, but I just gave him a little whack. That's all, nothing major. And he looked at me like, oh, my own flesh and blood. How could you do that? And then you know what he did next, don't you? He looked at me, didn't turn his head toward the VCR and put his hand right back in there. He wants to know if dad's serious, right? You remember the, the day the battle lines were drawn, moms and dads? 
And I realized, hey, I cannot let this go by. So I took his little hand, smacked him a little a bit again. He looked at me, anger, and then again. <laughs> and more aggressive, more aggressive. The battle was being drawn. I smacked him 17 times. I didn't kill him. I didn't kill him. He had a little red hand. He got over it. He survived. It's not child abuse. I'm just trying to find a way to communicate to him. Son, I'm trying to help you. And finally, he crawled away, kind of looking at me all the way. And he gets to the door, gets to the door, and then he turns around one more time. And I don't understand baby talk, but I know what he said. In the words of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. <laughs> and let me tell you, he's been back for 15 years. There are times, there are times that I've had to ground him. There are times I've had to take away Mr. Nintendo or the Wii or Xbox or Xbox 360. And I've had to say, son, until you learn that this is not the proper way to behave, I have to take this away. I don't like doing it. I know he loses out, but I also know the power of discipline so that I can prevent him from future destruction. And I'm willing to do that as a dad. How many of you would do not do the same for your child? You inflict a little bit of pain that greater pain may be avoided. Now let's go back over here. Here's the deal with the aquarium. This is what the Bible tells us all through the Old and New Testament. This is the way God works. Sometimes you young girls hook up with a guy and you say, God, please, I, I want to marry this guy. And God says to you, no, you don't. You think you do, but he's ultimately going to destroy you. And here's what he does. He starts to talk to your dad, right? And your dad, because he loves you and wants this relationship, he knows this guy is no good for you, but he's walking on thin ice. He doesn't know how aggressive he can be because he doesn't want you to hate him, but he knows he loves you. And he knows what God knows that if he allows this to happen, it's going to destroy your life, your marriage, and a lot of generations after you. So God breaks up the relationship. You get mad. You cry out, Oh God, how could you do this? And God says, don't you know, I'm chasing you to try to rip you out to save your life. He does the same thing with these guys. I, I have guys email me all the time. You know, I, I want a girl. I want the right girl. And God doesn't seem to give me the right girl. Well, the problem is maybe she hasn't come along yet. The right one for you. And if you settle for less, it will destroy your life, not give you a life of happiness. But you get mad at God because God didn't win the heart of this young woman that you so desperately thought you needed. But in the eyes of God, if he hooks you up together, it affects you, it destroys your life, and generation after generation to come. Just one bad decision. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. He's trying to pull you out and save your life. Some of you, you didn't get the job that you wanted. I've seen this too. Man, I really wanted that job. If I would have only gotten that promotion and that job, my life would be just so much better. And you prayed and you prayed, but you don't understand. Now, why didn't God give me that job? God looks down and says, man, Jeff, I would have given you that job, but in my infinite wisdom and foreknowledge, I could see that if I gave you that job, your family would be the one sacrifice. You'd have no time for your wife or no time for your husband, no time for your children. You think it's the answer to all your prayers. I'm telling you, it would have destroyed you. I'm gonna ask you to trust me. That's not the job for you. Worse yet, I see in this job, you're going to be required a few years down the road to engage in unethical business practices. And quite frankly, Jeff, you're not strong enough in your faith yet to not yield to that temptation. So I'm not going to give you the job and I'm not going to let you succumb to that kind of temptation that would destroy your life. Some of you, you want more money. Man, if I only had more money, I could see the world. I could do things I've always wanted to do. God knows that. And some of the things you want to do are not holy and pure. He knows some of you, if you're given more money, you would be tempted even further to lean towards your money rather than to God, to depend on this rather than him, or worse yet, to start engaging in activity that you previously could not afford. You want more money, but God loves you. He wants this relationship. He gives you this money. He knows that you stop holding his hand and go your own way. Is God unloving not to give you what will ultimately destroy you? Who of you would accuse me of being a bad parent 
If I took away something from my child to save his life, or if I even disciplined in some area, caused a little pain to rescue him from future pain, none of us. That's why I come back to the silhouette now, because here's how most of us see God. This is what God wants. This is why you were created, a relationship with God your Father. But we look at God as the genie in the lamp. Rub him three times, he comes out and says, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? And as long as God gives you what you want, you follow him, you talk about him, and you pray to him. But as soon as he doesn't give you what you want, you start making moral accusations that God is a bad God and has not given you everything you deserve. I think, folks, think about it just for a moment. Is it not true that we have been so affluent over the last 30 years? We have denied ourselves nothing. Whatever we want, we get. And we think it takes a lot to live on. And we think we need the best of everything. And we started to lean toward money and things for our hope and security. Would God be an unloving God to kind of strip that away from our economy for a season? Just to remind us, it is temporary. And if you try to fill an eternal void by temporary means, you're going to lose every time. Is God a bad God to let us realize what life would be like if all we had to depend upon was him? If he stripped everything out from under us so that we would know this is what really matters in life, our relationship with each other, with our children, with our wife and our family, and our relationship ultimately to God. But wouldn't God be just? I mean, would God be a good God if he allowed us to go down a road that ultimately leads to destruction, not only now, but through eternity and not do anything about it? Gita Mopasan had everything we men think we want. Everything. A great writer of short stories. In 10 years, he rose from obscurity to fame. I mean, it was said of him that critics praised him, men admired him, women worshiped him. He was so wealthy. This guy had a a house on the Norman coast, a flat in Paris, a yacht in the Mediterranean. And yet in 1892, the man who had everything died on the Riviera in an insane asylum after he had cut his own throat. And before that, he had written his own epitaph. And here's what he said. I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. Is God a good loving God if he lets his children Pursue those things that are not going to fill the ultimate eternal need that they have. And they try to substitute a relationship with God the Father with things that are temporary, that are rusting, that will fade away at best. Or is he not just and a fair and a loving God to bring whatever pain in your life or allow whatever pain is necessary in your life to compel and draw you back to him? Think about it. If your whole life is represented by a string, and that string stretches from here all the way to London, England. And somewhere over the Atlantic, there's a little black dot. And that little black dot represents your life, which means your existence is a lot more than your life here on the earth. Is God not a loving God if he does whatever it takes to get you into a relationship with him? If that is the manner in which he will escort you into eternity, where your life will be lived primarily not on the earth, but with God in heaven. Would God be fair to let you just go down a road that ultimately destroys your life here, your family here, and the life that is to come? Or if he really created you for relationship, would God not do whatever it takes to get you in that relationship, even if it meant stripping everything you depend upon other than him? Now, that leads me to this fourth item here that I really like. It's a bear trap. A bear trap or an animal trap is an interesting thing because when the bear or the animal gets caught in the trap, in order to let the bear go, you have to push the animal or the bear deeper into the trap 
to release the action on the spring so that you can free the animal. I think God has to do that to so many of us. To get our attention, he's got to let us pursue our own self-aggrandizement. He lets you go down the road that you want to go, like a Gita Mopasan, like a Harold Abrahams, so that you will get to the end of yourself and you will find out the futility and you will interpret your depression prayerfully and hopefully as the only thing that's going to meet your need and give you that thing that you're looking for the most is God. And anything you try to substitute, God reserves the right to rip it out from underneath you, to take it away until your eyes are open because ultimately he's trying to save you for a better quality of life, not only now, but in eternity. That's the trouble with addictions, whether it is to drugs or to pornography. When you're addicted to something, the problem is that you think that you can get out of it any time that you want and that you can make a decision along the way that all of a sudden you're strong and you're just going to stop it. So it continues to destroy you. It's stuck like Velcro day after day. It destroys your marriage, your family life, then your job. And I believe sometimes God has to push you deeper into the trap in order to let you out. And he does that by letting you get caught looking at pornography by your wife by your husband, by your employer. You lose your job and then you cry out to God, God, how could you let this happen? Now you think about that. You violate every law of God and then you ask him why he allows something to happen to you when he told you not to live your life this way. Have you ever stopped to think that when God gives his law, that he doesn't give it arbitrarily, but he gives it because he's motivated out of love and he knows if you live this way, you're going to have the abundant life. You violate these principles, your life's going to be really, really bad. And so sometimes in order to wake up, he's got to shove us deeper and deeper into the trap until we realize we cannot rescue ourselves by turning to God. That is the way out. Have you ever stopped to think that some of you have made a serious mistake when you think that your entire life and the pain that you've experienced is God hating you when in reality it's what he's doing to you in order to get you to turn to him and to compel you back into relationship because this is what he wants more than anything else. Now some of you are wondering, why is the monkey here? He's a cute little guy. I lived in Africa. These things are cheeky. I want to tell you that right now. You leave food out on a picnic table for five seconds and turn your back, they've got it and they run away. They're little thieves is what they are. Well, they were doing some research, not this one, he's okay. But up in the Congo, when I lived in Zimbabwe, they were trying to do some research with little monkeys. And to do the research, they had to catch them. It's hard to catch these little things, man, I'm telling you. So they created this little half barrel, a coconut barrel, and some nuts and uh, some uh, 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 coconut milk and bananas. And it smelled really good to the monkey. The monkey knew what was in there. So the monkey would come up then and he would put his hand in this little barrel. Everything was okay going in, but when he took the food and put it in his fist and made a fist, then his hand was too big to retrieve to get out of the trap. So they could catch the monkeys and perform their harmless experiments, and some great stuff was done. Here's the problem. All he had to do was let go. If the monkey would just let go, he could pull his hand out, but he just couldn't get himself to do it. And God knows that about you. You know you should let go and you'll be free, but you won't. You keep trusting in something other than a relationship with God. You want the job above all jobs. You want the relationship you think is the greatest, even though both are destroying you. So you choose that rather than God. You know what God does? He knows that you're going to need a little help to let go. So he forces you deeper into the trap till you have to let go or you won't survive. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Sometimes that's the only way he can burn off what's still binding you from living the abundant life. And as a father who loves you, he's concerned that you're putting your faith and trust in something that's holding you and putting you in bondage rather than in him that's freeing you up. And the truth is there are some of you in the room that need to stop praying that God deliver you from the furnace and pray instead that he meets you in the furnace. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.